She's what I would call a disruptive, constructive leader. She's challenging the mental model we still have in our minds that the only place of leadership is from the spokesperson role. And what she says is, no, you don't. You can lead without being the spokesperson. That that was it. That light bulb went off and said, this is the time to do this. We need to organize. We need a student organization. We don't need adult leaders. We don't need, let's get the, let's get the leaders of these youth groups that are doing these sit-ins. You're listening to Illogical by True. This podcast decodes the language, decisions, and hidden areas of local power that often seems illogical to residents. The goal of this podcast is to empower people to engage locally and to understand how significant it is to be aware and active at the local level. Once local government is logical, it will become meaningful and provide the benefits that allows for people to live a thriving life. I am Terrence Roof. First, I want to introduce you to Marie Stark. Marie Stark, a Shaw University archivist, originally comes from upstate New York. She cares for and preserves and provides research assistance of the historical materials of Shaw University for students and researchers of all kinds. Also, we have James White. James White, he's a leading national voice in the field of equity, diversity, and inclusion. My guest and I are excited about setting the stage for local empowerment with revisiting the legendary Ella Baker and SNCC. Marie and James, thank you for being here today on the show. Good to be here. Great to be here. Now, I wanna, I wanna first start a little bit with uh, James, if you could provide a little bit update on what you're doing right now, sure. and Marie, you could uh, just provide a little bit update on your position at Shaw, which is a fairly new position. Uh, so, James, I'll, I'll start with you. Well, well first of all, uh, Terrence, good to be here. When George Floyd happened, part of my work really began an interesting journey that's really a culmination of all of what I've always been interested in, which is really developing solutions to some of the disruption in culture that happens primarily through race. So uh, the United Health Group in Minneapolis and the YMC of the North in Minneapolis, they asked me to come and help them understand the differentiation between a protest and a riot and really understanding some of the cultural dynamics of what was going on there. So I first did that while I was still working with the Y of the Triangle, but then that's turned into a journey to where now I'm the Senior Vice President of Operations for the United Health Group Equity and Innovation Center of Excellence. And uh, United Health Group gave the Y of the North $5 million to start a center that really deals primarily with providing solutions systemically and culturally to really create a whole new reality of dealing with diversity, equity, inclusion. So right now, I serve full-time. I, uh, I'm at home, at work, virtually, but I travel to Minneapolis quite frequently and facilitate conversations with all sorts of people from the academy, uh, for-profit businesses, big business, small business, community organizations, all around how do we provide solutions to bring connections systemically to really bring change in equity, diversity, and inclusion. And then I take a narrative historical approach in doing that. I, what, was, what I appreciate about your work is one, you get a chance to engage corporate leaders mm -hmm. and most people would be satisfied there, uh, but you actually engage local governments, yes. <laughs> city council, <laughs> yes. commissioners. Yes. So you actually touch yes. local government as yes. they try to navigate historically, contemporary right. issues around um, just systems change. And so I, I just, uh, that's one of the main reasons why I wanted your voice um, in this in this discussion today. Yes. And Maria, I would love to, to pivot to you. Um, you have a very unique and special role. And in, in, in describing um, um, your role, can you give us a little bit uh, about Shaw as well? So I am, as you mentioned, the archivist at Shaw University. And what I am currently doing is restructuring the entire archive um, so to provide online finding aids, uh, organizing these collections, and really been doing a lot of community outreach. Um, I've done work with the City of Raleigh Museum, um, as well as the Pope House. Um, he was uh, the he graduated from our Leonard Medical School 
um, which no longer exists. Um, Shaw University, is, it's such an important university. It was the first HBCU in the South. Um, it was 18, since 1865, just at the close of the Civil War, when Henry Martin Tupper, who was a minister, a Baptist minister, he was a part of the Union Army, and he came down when he did his service. He said, you know, the, there needs to be a school. He, he came down to educate people in, you know, in the Bible and religion and religious studies and for the freed, freed slaves. And he said, you know, these, oh, so many of these people just can't read. These were, you know, so he said there needs to be a university. There needs to be a, a school where all these people who deserve an education. And, you know, so that's where it started. And it started in a little cabin where he had his first classes, which, you know, was a few individuals. Um, and then it built into, you know, still existing university. It is the first of uh, the first four-year medical program. It was the first four-year academic program for women, um, for black women especially, well, most specifically, um, and first black, uh, black woman dormitory that could live on campus. And they were not just taking sewing classes. There was an actual academic program of mathematics, science. Um, many of the women did go in for teaching. They also provided a school, uh, a normal school, which is really for students didn't have, you know, past the elementary education in a lot of rural areas. And there was not, you know, high schools for the black population. So they provided so they can kind of get that advanced education and then they could continue on at Shaw or if they decided to continue on into another college to continue an education. And they actually provided transportation for people in rural areas. And this is early on in the 1860s. And so what I'm trying to do is really bring this history forward. Um, a lot of people don't realize this because there are much larger names, um, but Shaw really is that first of so many things that really broke that, you know, divide and gave these education, you know, to people of color, to people who were enslaved. You know. So, so who, who, who was uh, responsible for holding that history prior to your role? That is, uh, there hasn't really <laughs> been much an archivist there. So really it was just the librarians that were kind of doing what they could. Um, I am actually a trained archivist. I've been doing it for 20 years. So this is my specialty. And you know, I think the last person was just a part-time person who really couldn't get much done. I mean, this, there's, there's a lot. There's a lot of materials I uncover. I learn something new every day, and it is fascinating, and it really it's just a history that needs to be known. Now, you, you see, um, just from giving us a little bit more details into what you do every day, you can see why this conversation mm -hmm. lends to both of your voices. I wanted to launch a podcast that brings clarity and makes logical what was once illogical of like local government. I wanted to start with Ella Baker. I wanted her to sort of be that key piece. But we know in history, we celebrate several names. You have Martin Luther King, you have, we can go on with all of these male figures. And sometimes um, there's an audience that, that, that forget about Ella Baker. So I wanted to launch with just when was you first introduced to Ella Baker, and who is Ella Baker? And so maybe how how were you first introduced to that human being? And then for you, Marie, you know who who is that person? Now I think it's important before we go there, Terrence, that we don't miss the power. And I I love what you said as far as having both of us here. But when you listen to Marie as she tells the story, you asked a very important question. And it's almost like who really is sort of guarding and keeping the story. And I think that's one of the transitions that we miss, especially in the African-American community, because we are an oral people, that all too often we haven't thought about how do we capture the story and keep the story? Because the assumption is, and this is where, again, my generation, we have missed that you think that the stories are going to be told, but because of the deconstruction of community and because of the deconstructions of systems and structures that we typically have depended on, i.e. the church and other places, now the story is lost. And so without an archivist, to what you would think, imagine, what do you need an archivist for? We just need to go to the professor that's been working at Shaw now for 20 years, or we need to go to someone else. Because story is part of the vibrancy and life of our people as African-American people. 
But now there's a transition and a change. So we need an archivist to really now collect and experience so that the story can continue. That's why, Marie, your work here is critical and important. And, and Terrence, I think you're right. Uh, it stays with the theme, I think, of your podcast, that for many of us, the idea of an archivist years back would be illogical. Well, now it's very logical. Now it's very important and critical in order for us to move forward with this conversation. And hence, uh, Ella Baker, I probably first heard about her growing up in many ways, but didn't know who she was because, again, I was born uh, in 61, but I was, my journey is a journey as an old man in a little boy's body because the woman who babysat me uh, made sure, her and her husband, uh, the Shields, they made sure that I was engaged in the whole narrative of the civil rights movement. So even growing up, I think I was exposed very early to the fact that the civil rights movement was not led by just one figurehead and Dr. Martin Luther King, but there were others who were critical and important because it was a movement. And I probably, now this is going to sound probably strange, but I remember my first state NAACP meeting. My first state NAACP meeting, I was a teenager. I was in, it was in the early 70s. Uh, and at that time, the president was Benjamin Hooks. And Benjamin Hooks is a name that goes all the way back, probably very few of your listeners, uh, unless they're familiar with the narrative of the NAACP. But he was the speaker. And I remember it was in Raleigh. The conference was in Raleigh. It was a state conference. I remember even as a teenager, them mentioning the power of Ella Baker. But it was just the mention of her name. I didn't know the details about her life until much later. Now, now I want to, I want to, like you did, I want to rewind as well. When I was walking through this journey to say, figure out, like, what are we talking about when we talk about local government making sense? There was a deep historical element to that. <laughs> and if we don't visit history, we would think that local organizing is nuanced. This is, this is new. This is new craft that we're doing. But when you start to read strategies that Ella Baker was putting on paper or was saying against the narrative of some of the dominant figures of the time, we're not saying anything new under the sun. Mm -mm. And so part of this discussion is to revisit what was now on the trophy case of black organizers of having successful change in the country at the local level. <laughs> and so um, part of it was... Uh, retelling the story yes, so that you realize that you're not embarking on some new trail. The, 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 the grass is already gone. The dirt is, there's a dirt path. <laughs> Somebody's already walked that journey. And so, um, Marie, if you can, if you can help us sort of understand Ella, the human being as well, that would be, that would be wonderful. So from Ella, so I will go back to, I actually first learned about her in undergraduate college. Um, I took a, it, and it was very lightly. Uh, it was a class on the 1960s that focused on, mainly focused on the civil rights movement. So that's where I first heard about Shaw. That's where I first heard about Ella Baker. But we didn't really, you know, it wasn't a whole lot of detail because there's a lot to cover in one semester. <laughs> As I started working at Shaw and just reading more about her and learning about her, I mean, such a powerful woman. Such a powerful woman. Wow. Uh, a role model, really, for any woman. Any, any black woman, any woman in general. I mean, she, as a child, was just very, from, my, from the sources I've read, just a very, from a child, really just knew fairness. Wow. Everything is about fairness. And she carried this through school, through high school. Um, she sat with her grandfather. You know, he, he was a reverend minister, and he, would want, he wanted her up there. He's very close to her. He wanted her up there and pulled it with her, with him. And her mother was like, no, I don't want her skinny little legs sticking out, you know. Um, and he, but he said, no, she's coming up here. And, you know, wow. so he, she was very, you know, very involved. She was very much involved with the church, even though she really didn't carry her religion too far, you know, very deeply. She hinted at it much, but she didn't include it with her politics, with her ideologies, with her, you know, her movement too much. She was a woman that just really wanted to see, she didn't want to be the figurehead. Mm -hmm. 
she cared more about the movement than the actual organization itself. She didn't care that what position she held. She wanted to see the young people come together. She wanted to see the local communities come together. And that's where the power is behind, the local communities. It's not a charismatic figure, as she put it, or, you know, um, as much as respect that she had for Dr. Martin Luther King and, you know, a lot in the a lot of the civil rights leaders, these were charismatic people. She did not want to focus on just one person. It was the power of the community. It, the community she had a very democratic, a true democratic mind, true mm-hmm. democracy, where the people, the community, make this, the decisions for what's best for their community. And this is really where the difference between her and everybody else stands. And she's really promoted. And as a young woman in in college, she did this. Uh, she, when she came to Shaw, she protested right away about women not being able to wear their silk stockings. And even though she said, I, I don't own a pair of silk, I can't afford that, you know. But the, for the people, for, for the ladies here that can, for the girls that can, let them wear it. Why can't they wear them? Because Shaw was very strict in their dress code and their conduct. Uh, she protested the, the idea that it, at Shaw, you could not, the, the guys and gals could not walk together. Across campus, she protested that. She said, no, that's, that's ridiculous. Why are we doing this, you know? Um, so I think very much, she was very much ahead of her time. Very intelligent. I mean, she graduated in 1827, valedictorian from Shaw with a BA. Um, she also was the valedictorian of her high school. You know, she was, she was a very powerful woman. Um, President Peacock actually wanted to expel her, her senior year, from Shaw. The faculty opposed this. They said, no, absolutely not. What are you, crazy? You know, they fought and said, no, she, you, you can't expel her. She's brilliant. She's absolutely brilliant. She excelled in debating. I mean, she got honors. She was a delegate for the YWCA traveling around for Shaw. So, I mean, she was really such a, such a figurehead without putting herself out there, you know, without trying to take the fame and glory of it. She just followed what her what she believed, where her heart led her, and this is what she did. And she carried this through her entire life. She had a leadership style that people I, I call them Neo Ella Bakers. <laughs> so they, they, <laughs> they sort of like follow her her leadership style. So James, how how did she sort of embark on a new way to lead? Because you you know we, we, there's a, there's we, we keep hinting at sort of leadership in the tradition of faith. Mm-hmm. And we keep hinting towards leadership in the tradition of sort of uh, politics at the time, mm-hmm. which was which was male-dominant. Um, how does she le- introduce a new way of leading? And then and then I, I want to walk that into SNCC, uh, mm-hmm. Marie. Uh, but, but like, I, I would love to, like, get your thoughts around leadership and, and, and what do you think that she brought in that space? So I also think, and, and thank you for telling her story, uh, Marie. I think it's important that when we tell the story, too, that we remember some dates in the story that are important as to why who Ella Baker is and why she functioned the way she functioned. So first of all, remember she's born in 1902 or 1903. Now, part of what becomes important is to center that and realize American history So you're talking about a woman who is born in maybe 40-some years since the Emancipation Proclamation. So you got to keep your mind around very much. So when we're talking about historical leaders, the times that they, the context that they were in, as you understand her story. So think about that just for a moment. And then she's also in Norfolk, Virginia. So she's in Norfolk, Virginia, only 40-some years since the Emancipation Proclamation. That alone gives you a little bit of what shaped her, her environment, but that alone makes her, I think, even more mysterious and powerful. So I think she also is valedictorian, as you mentioned, in the 1920s. So you're talking only 60-some years since the Emancipation Proclamation. You're talking about, as well, her really living into the institution of what Shaw was designed for, of really producing leaders. Now, one of the things I think we also miss is even the role of the church. The church at that time was really one of the only organizing spaces that black people could organize in. So that's why when you look at African-American history, you can't forego or negate or push the church aside 
So yeah, very much so, not just because my father was a minister, but because that's the only access. So you'd have to imagine her as a little girl sitting in a very organized reality because the black church service, we teased the black church of why did it last so long? Well, part of that was because of the genius of organizing in the black church, no matter what your faith story might be. So her organizing principles came from probably watching Again, her father, watching others around. But she saw organizing at its best. Because in the in most of us, most of our listeners, many of us have not experienced that traditional black church. And this is why I struggle sometimes when we ridicule or stereotype it. But the reason for such a long service was because there was an organizing reality that had to take place. Because this is the only time that people who lived in a Jim Crow reality can gather this is the and this is where you also see a disruptive power dynamic because in the black church you could be a janitor but come Sunday morning you're going to be dressed in your finest and now that janitor is really a trustee telling the educated pastor what he's got to do. So Ella experienced some of the genius and framing of even her organizing principles I believe possibly from a church context our mental models and bias when it comes to faith will not allow us sometimes to tell that complete story. But I think that's some that's genius that we might be leaving on the table that also led to her being who she is. Now, I think you're absolutely right. I think that's also part of what makes her, I think, as a leader, an incredible leader because she very early understood, but it could be because of the patriarchal reality that she lived in, uh, in many ways, uh, by being a woman, not having a voice in those space, and then a borderline misogynistic uh, thing that you begin to see that was even true in the African-American community, even though the real narrative of the African-American community has always been the leadership of women. And that's the leadership of women because of Jim Crow realities and a whole host of other things that we don't have time to go into. No, you, you're, you're, you're right. I mean, I've been trying to figure out, and, and, and maybe y'all can help me crack this this struggle that I've been trying to understand is, is around this framework that she placed out there. She would say this, and I, I would love to get your thoughts on this. She said, People first had to recognize their own right mm -hmm. to participate in all the decisions that affect their lives. And then she continued. Then comes the question, how do you reach people if they aren't already cautious of that right? And so you're talking about how she observed historically, possibly, mm -hmm. how decisions were made both by people who were impacted and by people who made the decisions for them. So she began to evaluate how decisions were made. Yes. And so early on, she said, decisions have to be pushed down to the lowest level it can go so that people who are impacted can make the decisions and have autonomy. <laughs> Dem democracy, as you, as you said, Marie. With that framework, we start to walk into SNCC. Now, most pe some people may not know what SNCC is, and most people don't know where it was located or how did she end up at Shaw organizing SNCC. But there's a leadership decision-making framework that she was wrestling with that was she, she was fully confident to do with SNCC. How did she come to that part? Like, like what, what, what do y'all think led to that moment of this is where decisions should be made? It should be made at the, at the lowest level you can go, and it should be owned by those who are living the life in which it will be impacted. The decision, the results of the decision will be impacted by. Now, mind you, you have a very celebrated sort of alternative model. <laughs> that's, a, that's a rolling very strong at the time. <laughs> Where it's top-down hierarchical, it really mirrors um, the structure of the NAACP at the time. You had, you had, your, you had your national committee, you had your national board, you had a, your national leader, then you had state branches. You just really had really just this sort of like corporate hierarchical top down. <laughs> and she's introducing a whole nother way of making decisions. Now, 
how do you get to that point? Before we even talk about SNCC, because SNCC, SNCC benefits from that maturation. But how do you get there from those two different places? Before I answer, give my, my response on that. I want to say that was a wonderful answer you gave about just the influence of the church. And, and you are 120% correct on that. And I absolutely agree with you. It's probably where she got her initial you know, influence on organization. Um, so nicely put. <laughs> um, where did she get to this? I think she was already politically minded, being growing up around it. Yes. And I think with that hierarchy of, you know, like as you mentioned, like this corporate hierarchy almost, it comes to a stop at some point. And then the question arises, what do we do next? What do we do? Okay. Um, where do we go from here? Okay, this level stopped. What about this level? Okay, they're going to do just this, so, you know, so much here. So what do you do? And I think what really sparked her and what actually what did spark her was these sit-ins. When she saw the sit-ins, you know, around around Raleigh, around uh, Charlotte, around Greensboro, around, you know, all these sit-ins happening, you know, not only North Carolina, but, you know, in, in these states, in these southern states. And that right there sparked her. And she said, this is what we need to do. And... Through the the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, who she was, you know, were, uh, working for, she was an administrator or some sort, and it wasn't, you know, it was funded by the eight hundred dollars they put up to fund this, you know, and she turned around and said, "No, we're going to have a conference." So it wasn't; it was her that did this. Wow. This was Ella who said, "No, we're going to have a conference, and you're going to fund this. Wow. Wow. <laughs> this is not an option." Wow. And she went to Shaw, and why did she go to Shaw? That's, I mean, I'm sure there's many reasons why it was her alma mater. She saw this was kind of a center of where a lot of this was happening. You know, it was happening in Raleigh. It was happening in South Carolina. It was happening in Virginia. You know, it's that's kind of, I feel like, was the epicenter where it's where everybody could get to. And she just turned around and said, you know what? We need to organize. We need a student organization. We don't need adult leaders. We don't need let's get the let's get the leaders of these youth groups that are doing these sit-ins. And she contacted, you know, all the, the leaders of the sit-in groups from various locations. Uh, she got about nineteen colleges from up north to participate, and she called Shaw and she had an agreement with them for their meeting rooms, for uh, accommodations, for meals. Um, so she came in agreement with Shaw, and it was done at SD Hall, which. Still stands today. Hmm. It's our oldest building. It was built in 1874 by bricks made from Shaw students. Wow. And, you know, she just, that that was it. That light bulb went off and said, this is the time to do this. And so from this hierarchy, she realized the same question keeps coming up. Of what, to, what do we do next? Well, this is what you're going to do next. You know, this is what needs to be done. So she formed the, the conference on April 17th, Easter weekend. And got all the leaders together, the youth, and she turned around, and her and, and and Dr. Martin Luther King were at odds against this. And he thought, well, we need the adults to lead. She said, no, absolutely not. The youth, we can't disrupt their vision. We don't relate to their vision. We're just going to be standby to kind of oversee, but we're going to let them lead. We're going to let them do it because they're the future. And that's really where it came about. And she conned, and Shaw can only accommodate about 40 people at the time. So... You know, so she contacted St. Augustine, she the y, uh, the YMCA, and you know other various groups. She stayed with local people that she met, um, local residents that she met while she was in school back in you know the 1920s, and you know that she befriended, and you know they would put people up, and to about 200 students showed up, and she turned around and said it's a little more than a uh, than a training. They they dubbed it as a kind of a training, a nonviolent training workshop and she's a little too many people for that this is a little more than that and so she said no there needs to be an organization and you know and then the debate came well do we you know Dr. Martin Luther King wanted to make it kind of a, an arm a branch off of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference and she said no this needs to be an independent you know people in the local communities need to do what's best for them and they need to stand up and they need to speak, and their voices need to be heard. We don't need to be led by one person. She And she didn't even want her name as a part of that. She didn't want to be recognized, and she didn't want to have that, you know, that acknowledgement as being the leader of anything. She was just like, I'm just organizing so they can come together, and we'll just kind of sit back, and we'll be there just to 
they have questions or if, you know. And, and Jane, any thoughts? I mean, so much yeah. was there. <laughs> no, that's, that's good. <laughs> you know, as, as you were saying that, there, there are a couple of things I think came to mind when you think about, uh, when you think about her. I think one, she's what I would call a disruptive, constructive leader. And what I mean by disruptive and constructive is she's disruptive, but she was very constructive in using the systems that she currently was in. But she still is very disruptive, though. And and yet she learned how to navigate and do that in ways that are incredibly effective. And I also think, too, that we don't want to miss the power of art in her life. I also wonder, remember, if she graduated in the 1920s, very much so when you read, she was a part of the Harlem Renaissance. And I think, again, we missed the broader context that was going on. And so the Harlem Renaissance is giving again, America, a whole different way of thinking through both art and strategy together. She's spending time with W.B. Du Bois. She's right there in really what I would call the beginning power dynamic of the NAACP growing in a sense of power. So she's watching systems and structures all around her. What makes her powerful, though, is she says, I want to disrupt those things from within and in doing it from within, but here's the price that Ella Baker paid for her strategy. It's why many of us who are listening to this haven't even heard of her. Because she knows that if I work within the system and if I'm disruptive, then a lot of times it's going to lead to your not having a name that is really going to go forward. Because when you're disruptive, people don't want to talk about you. When you're disruptive and you're going to challenge. So here she's challenging Dr. King. She's challenging the mental model we still have in our minds that the only place of leadership is from the spokesperson role. And what she says is, no, you don't. You can lead without being the spokesperson, but it's why people are still wondering. Like one of the things, and not, hear me, I'm ready to go someplace with this, and I'm trying to change the conversation. But it's sad for me the amount of pressure that we're putting on 23-year-old Ja Morant. At some point in Black America, we've got more leadership than just who plays basketballs and who signs million-dollar endorsements to where they don't even own their brand anyway. And part of what you begin to see this narrative around John Morant is someone who, wait a minute, uh, we own him. He's our brand, even though it's millions and millions of dollars. But then I see people criticizing him. What's going to happen to black youth? Millions of kids are going to see him brandishing a gun. Well, the, the problem is, is you've structured leadership simply by way of status and branding. Don't get me wrong. The moral reality of John Moran and him having a gun, it is heartbreaking. But there's a whole heartbreaking list of things of people who own the brands uh, that we've given brands to that they've done that somehow it didn't disqualify them. And I won't mention names because this is your first podcast and I don't want to get you in trouble <laughs> and have people not listen. But Ella Baker said no to all of that. This is the, do you see, you don't graduate valedictorian and someone give that to you. She was a brilliant yeah. thinker that put her thinking into action. And then she has integrity because very much so if you've got the SCLC, you're talking some of the most powerful organizations in her time, but she still is going to be disruptive in a constructive way and a whole different model of leadership. Facilitative leadership often will cause you to become an unknown. But that's what real facilitative leadership is all about is that you understand that real structure and change is going to require that others are going to be empowered and their names will more likely be more well-known than your name. You know, she said, you start with people where they are. And she said, you begin organizing people around that issue in terms of their level of understanding. Now, you talk about a brilliant person that was able to say, my intelligence must be able to translate to their level of understanding and to their issue. So she's not championing someone around her issue. No. Hey, that's an issue I have. I just need to get enough people around it so we can. Uh... No, she said, she said to their, their level of understanding to one another. Now, 
Go ahead. Yeah. Before you go any the, further, so once again, I think as we're having this conversation, this is where Ella Baker models a phrase that has been popular in business for a while now, the whole idea of servant leadership. What you just named, Terrence, is the epitome of servant leadership, that we don't begin with where you should be. I'm going to serve you and begin with where you are. And so I think that also, there, there's so many things about her that's ahead of her time that even those in the business community should read and study Ella Baker and understanding how she was able to move people. Uh, but she did that through servant leadership. And you saw that through her work and you saw that through her schedule. As in all the people she tried to engage, and I want to give you a chance to to provide input on that as well on her on how, her perception of leadership and, and anything you may want to add based on what was shared by James. Like I said, just her her ideologies, her beliefs is that it, you know you have more power with the whole with the local community than in one person. Mm. Power is in the people, wow. not one single individual person. So to bring people together to, to provide what SNCC ends up doing is providing an education for people to learn to vote, going to small communities and not just students. She reached out to the, these smaller communities. She reached out to students on high, in high schools, reached out to students on college campuses. So this mind frame of the power of the people, I feel like is more where she was, where she headed, where, where she wanted to see the, the, the strength in people coming together is where you're going to get results. And where ultimately it did. Yes. It absolutely did. And I'm sure we'll get into that a little down on the results of what SNCC accomplished. Yeah. You and, know. And I, you know, she said meeting people where they are is helping people identify and pursue their own desires rather than imposing an external agenda mm -hmm. on them or making social change on their behalf. Now, I want to go back to early meetings in SNCC. What were you able to find around those early meetings? Because at some point, she had to infuse this view so that students can eat it and believe it and then implement it in their practice. What, what, what were some of the early meetings of uh, Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee? I just want to make sure. I said. It's a mouthful. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, the first initial meeting it was the it was the preliminary start of SNCC. It wasn't the official SNCC. The very first Shaw meeting was look, we're going to put an organization together, and it was really just bringing all these youth leaders of these sit-ins. They weren't big named, you know, nationally known Martin Luther King or eventually the your Stokely Carmichael's or you know the big name Malcolm X. These were kids. These are early twenty year olds kids to us. You know, and she brought them together in this first initial meeting and said, look, you, you are the leaders. You're the future. You're our vision. And I just think that, that that's what the initial, meet, the initial conference was, is bringing them together to promote this, to show them, look, the ball's in your court. Take it. Run with it. This, this is what needs to be done, you know. It is up to you guys. You are an independent organization. And... It carried through. And then their next meeting, they held meetings every month. And the next meeting was in Atlanta. And that's really where SNCC became the, the name. That's where SNCC became SNCC officially um, was that second meeting. That first meeting was just that, look, this is what, th this try this. Let's do this because this may be a little more effective. What's the history between the first meeting and the second meeting? Because, again, you're now seeing where it's leaving this small little let's gather some young leaders to this is going to become a national organization, um, but also a national organization that empowers local leaders. This still wasn't this, this philosophy of let's go get rock stars. This was let's go get the everyday citizen, meet them where they are, empower them to engage locally. You're talking about, you just mentioned high schools. You just mentioned YMCA. You just mentioned, these institutions still exist today. Yeah, like these, absolutely. They didn't disappear anywhere. Absolutely. And so um, what was the difference between Atlanta, like, formalizing this 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 uh, and then, um, this organization and then, and then you know, um, Raleigh, what, what occurred in Raleigh, North Carolina? Well, I mean, from from what I know, um, I obviously know more a lot more about the Shaw meeting and whatnot than I do the Atlanta meeting. Um, but the Atlanta meeting is kind of just what solidified. It got the students there. They went to the local communities in Georgia. Mm. 
they went to to the, the the universities. They did the you know went to the high schools, and she kept it at that local level. And that it didn't. She didn't reach out to the big pops. We'll say the pop stars of the civil rights movement, the big names, you know, the superstars, your your front runners that everybody hears about. She didn't go there. Um, of course, you know, you had your leaders there, but she told them, "Look, no." We are, we are here to observe. We're here to just lend a helping hand. They are going to lead, and this is what she did. And in Atlanta, this she just gathered more, more local leaders, more local, whether they were adults in communities. Because what does what does a centralized group know? That is, what do they know? What a smaller community needs. The community knows what they need. Not. Yeah, you may think you know what this small community needs, but the people who are really in it are going to know. They're the ones that are going to say, "Look, we need we need the ability to understand voting. What are our rights? What are you know? What can we do?" And that's what what she did. And I think that is the difference between Atlanta and Shaw. Shaw was was the preliminary, like, "Look, this is what we need to do." Atlanta was like, "Let's get it," and now we're organizing, and we're going to organize these small groups without having these superstar front runners that everybody knows because they're great figureheads but and they're wonderful speakers and they have a lot of great things to say but this is action mm-hmm. and we're going to do this peacefully though it was a very gandhian style mm-hmm. approach you know she was very much about nonviolence yeah. she said you don't need violence we just need to do this all together and i think atlanta was that big boom where it really it solidified everything how would you see this decentralized model, James? Like, how would you see where the where the nuggets of power rest in this sort of decentralized model? Most people can naturally, and I'm assuming this statement, but most people can naturally see the nuggets of power in a, right. in a, in a top leader right. that's making decisions and then right. the army follows, right? So wh- where are the nuggets of power in this sort of decentralized power? And then how was it effective? And I would love for both of y'all to talk on its effectiveness. Yeah, I, I think a couple of things. Um, part of it is when we when we think about it, it's almost like you would have to be much more intentional to be local than you did at the time when she's. Because think about it, there wasn't a technology that allows your voice to be connected. So that's why when you look, if you look at Ella Baker's uh, biography, autobiography, you begin to see that she traveled a lot. She paid a heavy price to be able to do what she was doing. So you almost had to have a local strategy because she lived under what King talked about, the fierce urgency of now. She very much had this urgency about her, so she didn't want to waste any time. I think the other thing we should miss is her age. You know, when you made reference to the fact of 20s, well, yeah, Dr. King was in his 20s, and we keep forgetting that he died in his 30s. We keep forgetting that King was young. We keep forgetting that Malcolm X in his 30s. And so we age these leaders that they're much older. Ella Baker, born in 1902, she was not a younger person which makes her even more powerful is because here you have a woman in her 40s and 50s that is still able to mobilize young people. And she's able to mobilize young people because she had this understanding of power and power dynamics that younger people have. That Some of us who are older are complaining that we don't have a voice. What Ella Baker approached, and I think what made her effective, is she didn't need a voice. She needs for you to have your voice. Because she understood that it would require a collective organized response in order to do things on the look. I can't wait for Dr. King to get here. I can't wait for Ralph Abernathy to come. Can't wait for Julian Bond or anyone else, uh, Wyatt T. Walker, any other of the key leaders at that time. You're going to have to do it here because we don't have time to wait. I think we forget that Dr. King is the one who used the technology of social media, of television. But Ella Baker understood that. So she had to develop strategies that were going to mobilize people right where they are. She had this urgency that, in her mind, I can only imagine, look, I don't have time to convince these pastors who also not only struggle with her, but they struggle with Dr. King. 
a lot of people in the faith community did not like these ways of Dr. King. Here he is, educated PhD up in Boston. Uh, so we don't need this young intellectual coming in. So we keep forgetting that she's watching disruption all around her. And she's just saying, I can't wait to convince when really I need to organize and compel these young leaders. But when we say young, the majority of the civil rights movement had 20-somethings. And, and, and we keep forgetting that. We, because it was long ago. But she's just mobilizing those who are there and those she had access to. If we want the person that's listening, let's say it's somebody mm-hmm. at Shaw, they're in their dorm, and they're like, man, this new thing came out, right? Mm-hmm. How do we land this to where they feel inspired to engage? Yes. And not... It's a good question. Yeah, like, like, could they, they're learning the history, and I think mm-hmm. that's, I think that's setting the table for them, so they, they don't realize that, so they don't have to feel the weight of starting something new. This is not new, right? And then you're saying this is the problem we're seeing. This gap. Mm-hmm. Then how do we land the plane and say this is how we need? This is why we need you. Like, like, what was it in Ella's story that made her the eligible? catalyst for this Got it. so that the person sitting in the dorm can feel that they could be that catalyst too. Got it. Like how do we land that, that process? And it's, and it's, and it's not so much about finding a rock star. It's about yeah. wherever you are, where you are right now. Yep. Her view is that you're relevant. That's right. <laughs> you are, That's right. You are important. That's right. Um, not, and she never sort of shares the valedictorian. I, I learned about the high school valedictorian from you. She never really. No, that's, she it, never wanted to no. be that spotlight. No, no, no. She just wanted to see people, the local communities. She, that's what she believed in, though. She wanted to see the communities, the college students, the people who, you know, needed to have that voice. She recognized that there was that stopping point with the leaders, with having an individual leader. She saw there's this stopping point, and then it's like, what do we do now? Now what? What next? And it's like, look, you're only going so far. It's the people who need to speak up. But we have to show them or educate them on certain things in order for them to be able to do this. They need to be knowledgeable of what their rights are or what their, you know, whatever, you know, what their voting rights are, how to vote. You know, so that's why SNCs ends up, you know, doing workshops and going to smaller communities and doing workshops and doing that's, educational that's classes. And it. I think that's where that tie-in that's is, is it. how did she do this? That's it. She went to local community. She didn't tell people, come to me. Uh, she didn't go on TV it. and say, you know. That's it. And there was other people to do that. I mean, that's it. So that's, I think, where that. So SNCC gave us a playbook <laughs> that we have put on the shelf. It's collected dust. Basically. <laughs> it's collected dust. It's it's it even have trophies around it. But we have not revisited that story. I would say we have revisited, but we haven't sort of lived into the story uh, with the same way that good. Ella Baker did. That's good. And, and what I mean by that's that, good. one of the closest pictures that we have of really organizing from a grassroots level. Is Black Lives Matter. Mm. But what happened is, yeah. is we moved away from the Ella Baker narrative, yeah. and all of a sudden we celebritized, yeah. <laughs> you know, those who were leading it. Yeah. We we put it on the T-shirt. Uh, now there's organizations that started by it. Yeah. And so we moved away from, but really the whole idea of Black Lives Matter, a grassroots organizing movement, that was really responding because of the urgency of what had happened. And the urgency of what had happened in Ferguson, Missouri. Mm. You're talking about a no-name small area yeah. outside yeah. of St. Louis yeah. in many ways. Yeah. And part of what, so that was, I think that was sort of a cultural revisiting mm. of this idea of organizing from the grassroots. But then we moved away from it. Wow. And we now all of a sudden began writing the books, having it become popular. Ah, that's good. Does that make sense? Yeah. So we 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 said grassroots, we sort of we sort of value Ella's narrative there. Mm-hmm. 
when she started showing you what it means to live that's in that right. facilitative that's leadership. That's right. That's right. We're not interested. We're in not that. interested in So that. the controversy exists around that absence. That's now right. you're talking about mansions being purchased, et cetera. It was like a, it was like a it was like a, a movement from right. all of Ella. That's not right. just that's right. Not just a strategy that built that's right. the movement. That's right. And so the leaders walked into this controversy. That's right. Because they became the stars yes. of this Black Lives Matter yes. protest. They began to buy these homes, these That's lavish right. homes. Yeah. That's right. And so Ella would have never been seen. She would never. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Absolutely. Never, Absolutely. Yeah. But that, I think, also is, you know, and that really just shows the differences of the times because uh, I think a lot of that is a result of social media. Yeah. It's a result. And things get out so much faster now. That's good. It's you right. know, so there is no, it's hard to have secrecy. Mm. Not say, you know, yeah, 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 yeah. I, I feel like she was working more, not like a yeah. secret organization, yes. but it was much lower down low, you know, lower keyed. That's good. You know, it, there, good. there was no Twitter to say, oh, Ella Baker's yeah. on the on the roll again and she's down in here doing this and that and the other. Yeah, You know, it, there was none of that. You might get the newspaper reported a week later, but, yeah, you know, yeah. but it wasn't an immediate and, and and there's a there's a social pressure to be a non-Ella Baker leader. That's right. There's like social pressure. They want you to be this uh, yes. dominant leader. Yes. Matter of fact, we select leaders who are not Ella Baker. Absolutely. We select the leader who stomps on someone to get to. Yep. Or silence voices to get somewhere, or um, consumes power into a top position to get somewhere. Yes. We actually celebrate and train and right. create master classes. That's right. That's <laughs> right. Yeah, absolutely. Or, the, or they just buy their position. <laughs> yes, indeed. Master class. You, you, and, and this, let's have a master class on how we now can produce <laughs> elevator type leaders. Uh, Dr. Terrence Ruth is offering a masterclass <laughs> of how do you strategically organize like Ella Baker to where you leave an impact long after you're yes, gone that was still, yes, you, you get yes, my point. Yes, mm -hmm. yes, yes. James and Marie, thank you so much for taking the time to hang out with me today, sharing your knowledge, Thoughts and opinions on matters like local civic engagement. This is such a great episode that we're going to have a part two. So join us on the next podcast episode. Thanks, everyone, for listening to this episode of Illogical by Truth podcast. This episode was edited and produced by Airfluence. I am Terrence Ruth, and we'll see you next time on the next episode. Thank you.